The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. I'm Rufus Griskin, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, number 15 on our countdown of the best books of last year as chosen by our app users, The Sweet Spot by Paul Bloom. There's an old joke. A guy is banging his head against the wall. Someone asks, why? And the guy goes, because it feels so good when I stop. Suffering, it turns out, can enhance pleasure and helps us find meaning and purpose in a world full of cheap thrills. That's the seemingly paradoxical theory at the heart of Paul Bloom's lucid new book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. Paul, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, draws on cutting-edge research in neuroscience and psychology to show that if you want to live the good life, you've got to learn to live with a little hurt. Stick around after Paul's book bite to hear a sneak peek of his interview with Next Big Idea Club curator Susan Cain. Their full conversation will be part of our new season, which starts next month. Hi, I'm Paul Bloom. I'm a professor of psychology at University of Toronto and an emeritus professor at Yale University. My new book is about the surprising role that suffering plays in a life well-lived. It's called The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. And I want to share with you five big ideas from this book. A lot of people will tell you that humans are hedonists. We just want to have a good time. We seek out pleasure. We avoid pain. And that's the end of it. Now, sometimes we choose to suffer, but under this view, the only reason we do that is in order to get what we want. So we go to work to make money so we can have fun. We go to the store to buy food so we can eat. But in the end, all we really want is pleasure. I don't think this is right. And I hope my book will convince you to take seriously an alternative, which we could call motivational pluralism. It's a terrible sounding name, but the idea is that we want many things. We should reject one word answers to the question, what motivates people? It's nicely summed up by the economist, Tyler Cowen, who writes, what's good about an individual human life can't be boiled down to any single value. It's not all about beauty or all about justice or all about happiness. Pluralist theories are more plausible, postulating a variety of relevant values, including human well-being, justice, fairness, beauty, the artistic peaks of human achievement, the quality of mercy, and the many different and indeed sometimes contrasting kinds of happiness. Life is complicated. Now, one alternative to pleasure that I focus on a lot in the book is meaning. And in some way, I argue this drive for meaning is every bit as important as the drive we have to have a good time, to enjoy ourselves, to be happy. I present a lot of scientific data for this position in the book, but it's an old idea. And I draw upon the writings of Viktor Frankl, particularly in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. So in the 1930s, uh, Frankl, who was a psychiatrist in Austria, ended up in concentration camps, first at Auschwitz and then Dachau. And he was a scholar. His topic of research was depression and suicide. And even in the camps, he continued his work. He studied his fellow prisoners wondering about what distinguishes those who maintain a positive attitude from those who can't bear it, losing all motivation, often killing themselves. And he concluded 
that the answer is meaning. Those who had the best chance of survival were those whose lives had broader purpose, who had some goal or project or relationship, some reason to live. As he later wrote, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And I think this is a nice illustration of the complexity and richness of human motivation. Big idea number two, suffering can enhance pleasure. I started this book because I was interested in a puzzle. Normally we avoid pain and anxiety and stress and discomfort, but sometimes we seek it out. Um, Think of your own favorite negative experience. Maybe you go to movies that make you cry or scream or gag. You might listen to sad songs. You might poke at sores, eat spicy foods, immerse yourself in hot baths or saunas. Maybe you climb mountains, run marathons, decide to get punched in the face in gyms and dojos. So what's up with that? Why would you seek out these unpleasant experiences? Well, there's different reasons for this, uh, this phenomena, which Paul Rosen calls benign masochism. Sometimes pain can help you escape from yourself. A sharp jolt of pain can be a distraction from your day-to-day worries. Sometimes we seek out pain to signal to others how tough we are and or how much uh, we need support and need help. Sometimes pain is a source of flow and mastery. C.S. Lewis points out that if you're not eating because you have no food, there's not much good to be said about that, but if you're not eating because you're fasting, that could be a demonstration of control and mastery. Probably the simplest explanation for benign masochism is that pain and pleasure are intertwined. Neuroscientists will tell you that the brain is a difference machine. Experience is understood in terms of contrast. So there are various uh, laboratory experiments, for instance, where you give people uh, a moderate level of heat, and this would be painful if uh, it's not expected, but if they were expecting something more intense, they could actually find it pleasurable. In studies involving gambling, losing $10 is pretty bad, but if you thought you'd lose $50, it's not bad at all. It's kind of positive. And I think we play with this contrast uh, in order to give ourselves pleasure. We sometimes engineer ourselves so we get pain so as to maximize the contrast with the experience that comes next. So um, the bite of a hot bath could be worth it because of the blissful contentment it comes when the temperature is just right when it cools down. The mouth burn of hot curry can be pleasurable because of the shock of relief when you guzzle down some cool beer. This is the contrast theory of why we choose to experience pain. It's like the old joke my dad used to tell me about the guy who was banging his head against the wall. When asked why, he said, it feels so good when I stop. Big idea number three, suffering can give us meaning. Originally, when I started the book, it was just going to be about pleasure, about hot baths and saunas and scary movies and so on. I was going to call it the pleasures of suffering. But as I talked with friends and colleagues and read the work of psychologists and philosophers, I began to have doubts. It seemed to me that a lot of the negative experiences we pursue don't provide pleasure in any simple sense. And this got me to motivational pluralism. I started to think about how they could provide meaning. So, you know, we people, young men, uh, sometimes choose to go to war. And while they don't wish to be maimed or killed, they hope to experience challenge, fear, and struggle. Some of us choose to have children. And usually we have some sense of how hard it would be. Um, and But we rarely regret our choices. 
More generally, the projects that are most central to our lives involve suffering and sacrifice. If they were easy, what would be the point? I want to quickly tell you five facts that link together suffering and meaning. First, individuals who say their lives are meaningful tend to report more anxiety and worry and struggle than people who say their lives are happy. Second, the countries whose citizens report the most meaning, who say they live the most meaningful lives, tend to be poor countries where life is relatively difficult. And this is different from the countries which are the happiest, which tend to be prosperous and safe. Third, the jobs that people say are the most meaningful, such as being a medical professional or member of the clergy, often involve dealing with other people's pain, and they are not easy job. Fourth, when asked to describe the most meaningful experiences of our lives, we tend to think about those on the extremes. This includes very pleasant events, but also very painful events. And fourth, and I think most important, we often choose pursuits we know that will test us. Everything from training for a marathon to raising children. Because we know at a gut level that these are pursuits that matter. As Julian Barnes put it, it hurts as much as it's worth. Big idea number four. Effort sweetens life. Psychologists like to talk about effort paradox which is the idea that we normally seek to reduce effort. We try to make things easy for ourselves. But sometimes effort is the secret sauce that makes things better. One of the classic findings in psychology is that the more effort you put into something, the more you value it. This is the logic of Benjamin Franklin's classic advice on how to turn a rival into a friend. Ask him or her to do you a favor. Having work to help you, they'll like you more. Or take uh, Mark Twain's story, of when Tom Sawyer had to whitewash his fence, when Tom's friends come by, he pretends to be delighted at the task, and soon his friends end up paying him for the privilege of working on the fence, and they seem to really enjoy themselves. As Twain put it, Tom Sawyer had discovered a great law of human action, namely that in order to make a man or a boy covet a thing, it is only necessary to make that thing difficult to attain. Now, those are anecdotes and stories, but there's laboratory support for this. Michael Norton and his colleagues did a series of experiments where they had people create simple objects. And either the people created the simple object by themselves, or they had it ready-made. It was the same thing in the end. But people preferred the object that they created. They became specially attached to it, and the more work, the better. They call this the Ikea effect, after the big box store, where people put together uh, their furniture from it and then um, seem to value it more. Another manifestation of the pleasures of effort is what Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. Um, You might think that the perfect life is sitting on the sofa watching Netflix and relaxing, but Csikszentmihalyi discovered that people actually get enormous amount of pleasure and satisfaction and richness when they're immersed in an activity, an activity he calls flow. You know you're in flow when time goes by and you don't notice it, when you forget to eat, when you miss appointments, when it's like you just lost in an activity. And the logic of flow is the activity has to hit a certain sweet spot. It can't be too easy, then you get bored. If it's too difficult, um, you get anxious. But the power of flow, which is experienced by great athletes, by musicians, by writers, and at times by all of us, is a nice illustration of the centrality and importance of effort in human satisfaction. 
Big idea number five, you don't want to try to be happy. There are two reasons for this. The first is that it's self-defeating. It turns out you could screw up being happy by trying to be happy. There are studies that look at the extent to which people are motivated to pursue happiness. You might ask people questions like, uh, to what extent do you agree with the statement, feeling happy is extremely important to me? Or how happy I am at a given moment says a lot about how worthwhile my life is. It turns out that people who agree with those items are less likely to get good outcomes in life and more likely to be depressed and lonely. There's a few reasons for this. Maybe people who pursue happiness set unrealistically high expectations for themselves, setting themselves up for failure. Or maybe the self-conscious pursuit of happiness makes you think a lot about how happy you are. And that gets in the way of being happy. In the same way that thinking about how good you are at kissing probably gets in the way of being good at kissing. I think the most plausible explanation is that we're not that accurate about what makes us happy. It turns out that pursuing extrinsic goals those goals related to praise and reward, like looking good and making money, makes you less happy and less fulfilled, and is linked with more depression, anxiety, and mental illness. Somewhat paradoxically, if you want to be satisfied with your life, if you want to get pleasure and joy and meaning, maybe you need to try less hard at attaining these things. The second argument against it is, comes from a, a wonderful thought experiment by the philosopher Robert Nozick. And he imagines an experience machine. If you plug yourself into the machine, you will generate the experience of living a life of intense pleasure, happiness, and satisfaction. It's like a combination of the Matrix and Woody Allen's Orgasmatron, only better. And so the question to ask is, would you want to plug yourself into a machine and spend the rest of your life thinking that you led a rich and full life? Nozick says no. And many people, including me, would say no as well. We want to live in the real world, to do things, not just have experience of doing things. As Nozick puts it, it's only because we first want to do the actions that we want the experience of doing them. More generally, he says, someone's floating in a tank is an indeterminate blob. And who in the world would want to live their life as an indeterminate blob? I think this is the problem of hedonism. Someone who focuses their life on pleasure and positive experience is missing out on other things of tremendous value, like seeking out truth, like helping others, establishing relationships, and being a good person, both to people that they love and to the world at large. That was Paul Bloom, author of The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. As I mentioned at the top, Paul recently sat down with our curator, Susan Kane to talk about his book. We'll be releasing their entire conversation as part of our fourth season of interviews, which starts next month. But here's a little preview. It feels to me reading your book as if you started off wondering about these questions of why we should be drawn to supposedly unpleasant experiences, you know, whether it's horror movies or sad songs or whatever it is. But I feel like your book actually ends up becoming a real instruction guide and meditation on the nature of happiness and meaning. Yeah, it, it's, I don't know if this happens with you, but the book is somewhat unrecognizable from the proposal. Yeah. Um, it, the book started off, I was going to call it The Pleasures of Suffering, and it was going to be about why do we willingly do things like spicy foods and hot baths, scary movies, BDSM. 
And why do we seem to take pleasure in suffering? And I was going to explore the psychology of it. But as I began to do that, I became interested in suffering more broadly. And I became interested in human motivation more broadly. And in the end, the book is, is it's a lot of things, but, but it, it's an argument for, and I didn't expect to get there, but an argument for what I could call motivational pluralism, which is that we don't just want pleasure. We want other things too. We want to be good. We want to have meaningful lives. We want to have purpose. We want to have uh, a range of different experiences. And so we want different things, and suffering could be a route to getting many of these things. If you had to encapsulate the book like in one, one thesis statement, would you say it's about motivational pluralism? Yeah, I guess if it, one thesis statement is the book is about why we choose suffering and how suffering can add to pleasure, really give us a good time, but also it's part and parcel of what we value the most. Right. And some of the suffering we choose isn't about pleasure at all. It's about deeper pursuits, deeper things we want. You talk about negative emotions not necessarily being unpleasant, which sounds like a paradox, because if they're Does, negative, yeah. then by definition, they would seem to be unpleasant. So can you tell us more about what you mean? Yeah. So one way to approach the issue is through David Hume and his famous uh, paradox of tragedy, which is, and he yeah. says, like, why do we sometimes, and he's interested in like, like fictional experiences like books or plays, why do we sometimes go through sorrow and terror and anxiety, even though things are inherently unpleasant? And it's an enormous puzzle. And people have wrestled with it since. And one response to this is, these feelings, although typically negative, are not in themselves bad. And sometimes we can take pleasure from them. Sometimes we can get insight from them. Sometimes they are unpleasant, but we could, we could revel in them nonetheless. One way to think about this is fear. So imagine a case where you're really afraid. Like, I don't know, it's the middle of the night and you hear heavy footsteps and people running towards you. It's very scary. That's unpleasant. But what makes it unpleasant? I think what makes it unpleasant is that the situation which is frightening to you is a situation could involve injury or death or something like that. Imagine you could feel fear in a case where you know there's no real threat to you. You're fantasizing. You're dreaming. You're in a haunted house. You're, uh, you're watching a scary movie. Now it takes on a different texture. You say, I, I love being afraid. I want to be afraid. I came here to be afraid. And I think so too with emotions like anger, which typically is a response to unfairness and injustice, but you could kind of get a kick out of being angry and connecting to your, to your own work, issues of, of, of sorrow, of, of some of emotional pain. Does that fit, fit your own perspective on things? I guess yes and no for me. Like, to me, the experience of sorrow and bittersweet and why do we like sad songs and, and the paradox of tragedy as it's applied to sorrow, to me, it's that's a very different question from other kinds of negative emotions like fear um, or anger and so on. Yeah, and I, I don't want to derail it and go into like a whole different um we we have the hour we could go wherever, wherever <laughs> we want <laughs> we've already we've already been paid <laughs> so so why do you think sorrow is special i think sorrow is special because i see sadness as being one of the fundamental um, pathways that we have to human connection and that it also has to do with spiritual longing and 
that's why I see it as something that's different from those other kinds of emotions. So yeah, I, I see sorrow as tapping into um, almost a kind of evolutionary impulse that we have for the mother to respond or and the parent to respond to a crying child and that that's kind of the roots of our ability to respond to each other in general. And I think that when we hear sad music and when we see something beautiful and have that experience of our eyes welling up with tears at the sight of what we think of as an almost unbearable kind of beauty, that the reason that we're crying is because I think it comes out of like a sense of spiritual longing for a world that is more more perfect, more loving, more beautiful than the one that we live in now. And it's like the gap between the world we long for and the world that we actually have that is triggered by that beauty and it's triggered by sad music. So you would say that unlike emotions like fear and anger, which show up in different forms in other species, the sorrow you're talking about sounds uniquely human. Yeah, or or that... I don't know if it's uniquely human or not, actually, because all mammals, I would say, are primed to respond to the cries of their infants and probably their affiliative tendencies, you know, that you see like in elephants who will care for each other and, and so on. Mm-hmm. I think that also comes from sorrow. So I don't see, it's not that I see sorrow huh. as uniquely human. I think it's, it's more that I see sorrow as a unique emotion as opposed to like all the other negative emotions. I mean, it, it's it's certainly like it in many different ways. And like in your book, you you go brilliantly through all these different ways. And I really want to, um, I, I want to explore all that. I guess I'm just saying that that's why sorrow to me is stands in its own category as well. That's that's so interesting. You can learn more about Paul at his website paulbloom.net. He also made a wonderful e-course for The Sweet Spot. It's only available on the Next Big Idea app, which you can download by following the link in the episode notes or by searching for Next Big Idea wherever you get your apps. On our app, you can also listen to hundreds of book bites. There's no better way to get smart fast. With book bites, you can read a book in the time it takes to make a pot of coffee. Just search for Next Big Idea in your app store. On our next episode, why binary thinking is holding you back. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you tomorrow.